coming up, a taxing time for David Cameron. But haven't we all missed the point? Plus, we dig into England's local elections, and I promise it will be interesting. We may talk about this. Plus, is this the best piece of political campaigning there's ever been? Meanwhile, in the nursery, Jeremy is asserting his leadership. Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading the latest podcast. Well, hasn't April been quite the month packed with revelations already? It turns out, I don't know if you knew this, but David Cameron is a wealthy man from a wealthy family. And like a lot of wealthy families, he's moved his money around in ways that, you know, could minimise their tax bill. Now, last week, Downing Street insisted the Prime Minister had no shares, no offshore trusts, nothing like that. Two days later came the second half of that answer. Uh, Mr Cameron had nothing like that because he'd sold all of those shares a few months before entering Downing Street. Speaking to Tory activists, the Prime Minister admitted this has not been his finest hour. I know that I should have handled this better. I could have handled this better. I know there are lessons to learn and I will learn them. And don't blame Number 10 Downing Street or nameless advisors. Blame me. And I will learn the lessons. Well, Robert Meakin joins me from his country pile somewhere in the north of England. No doubt not as grand as David Cameron's. Um, Robert, David Cameron admitted that he could have handled this all better. He couldn't really have handled it any worse. No, it was it was a very confusing uh, messages put out from the Prime Minister initially, and then you could feel the Downing Street machine backtracking, backtracking, clarifying, clarifying. You can sense the panic. Um, it's a, it was, oh, inevitably to be to be fair to the Prime Minister, it was a, a difficult position to be in. He was never going to come out of this one a winner. His his father, of course, has done or did, I should say, his late father did nothing illegal, but it's still didn't look good in the eyes of his critics. It's, it, it, was an, it was a reminder, to be brutally frank, that we have an extremely wealthy prime minister from a very wealthy background, as if we needed reminders of that. And of course, his enemies seized on that with pure vitriol and put him on, put him on, the, on the back foot. Well, we already knew that David Cameron was rich and we already knew that rich people try to avoid paying inheritance tax. I suppose the problem is it's quite hard to portray yourself uh, as the Tories have tried to do every year as the party of the ordinary working person when you've got you know, quite so many very wealthy people at the, at the top. There was a focus group a while ago that asked voters to identify the sorts of people they thought would do well under each party. And the one that was singled out most often as the type of person who would do the best from the Conservative Party, it was that posh couple on Gogglebox. Yes, I, I think it'd be fair to say that would represent an image problem, wouldn't you say, for the Conservative Party? And it is, of course, it is difficult, you know, uh, for them to portray themselves as the, the men and women of the people, the one nation Tories. That that's an old label they now like to use with increasing frequency. When in fact you do have such incredibly wealthy people, namely the Prime Minister, namely the Chancellor, both from very very wealthy backgrounds. On the flip side, I have to say I always have a problem with it because if you start arguing that 
wealthy, posh people can't have a social conscience, can't have compassion, then you're, I do think you're on dodgy ground. My own view is that there are shysters on all sides. From my own experience, I've met many a working class politician shyster and many an upper class politician shyster. So I don't think it's exclusive to posh, wealthy people that, you know, to say that David Cameron, because he has his vast wealth, he can't feel any sort of empathy. You know, he's not qualified for the job. Well, we'll we'll get into the consequences of all of this in a minute, but I, I just think it's interesting that the David Cameron of two years ago I don't think would have made this many elementary blunders it wouldn't have taken five days and five statements to drag this out of him and he would have realised that giving voters 10% of the story then 20% then 30% was a stupid strategy and it's just proof of the extent to which this obsession with the EU referendum has just sucked all the oxygen out of the room it's absorbed everybody his eyes off the ball David Cameron two years ago would have spotted much sooner the huge potential to harm his image and the government's image of this story that it took him so long shows how much he's not concentrating on other things. Yeah, and it's an argument maybe to say also this is a prime minister who's not going to have to stand for election again as well. You know, maybe he was so careless. At the end of the day, though, where do you get your political enemies? Where are their weak points? Often is the family. We know that throughout history. And this, yeah, it, it, it genuinely was a weak point for him and a blind spot he didn't know quite how to handle it because it it was his late father who he obviously loved a great deal and it was he suddenly lost perhaps his usual political logic when it came to this i think that that was genuinely the case I mean, it would be nice if we could all agree to leave each other's dads out of this, given that this has got a lot of echoes of what happened to Ed Miliband a couple of years ago. And of course, for all of this shouting about people's taxes and how wealthy David Cameron is, the real scandal in this story is the huge numbers of firms and individuals using all manner of tricks to hide away billions of pounds and avoid paying tax. The problem is that's very, very complicated. It's a lot easier to understand the concept that David Cameron, a rich person, is rich and that George George Osborne is rich and Boris Johnson is not so much rich as fabulously wealthy. Um, uh, The biggest domestic consequence is apparently now politicians who aspire to high office are going to have to publish their tax returns. And that's actually quite a big shift. It didn't follow any kind of debate or discussion. It just happened because the Prime Minister happened to find himself in a tight corner and that seemed the easiest way to get out of it. There was a definite sense of panic there. I mean, they just felt the tide was going that way and the situation was irretrievable and they just, they had to agree to this. I I can't imagine there are, are many MPs possibly on the Conservative side thanking the Prime Minister for that. I think it does it makes life uh, a lot more sort of complicated, I'm sure, for a few of them. You have to wonder if if... This is going to have an impact on the caliber of the people who go into politics in future. If you thought every last previously private moment of your life, up to and including what your father may or may not have done decades ago and every tax return you've ever submitted, if that all has to now be made public as the price of entry, the risk is quite a lot of otherwise talented people might just say, sod that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are plenty, plenty of good reasons to, to not want to be a politician these days, particularly if you've you know, had a career where you've made some money in the private sector beforehand. I mean, the, the current climate, it does not look good, you know. So, uh, and of course, it's extending now also to 
Oh, they suggested the other day that be prominent political commentators. They should also uh, make you to declare their tax returns, the likes of Andrew Marr. Well, I publish my tax return, but we wouldn't be able to do another podcast because we'd be spending so much time gut laughing. How uh, quickly has the Labour Party handled this? Because the initial shout was that Cameron should resign. And it, it really would be nice if they would stop trying to urge everybody in the government to resign every single time something happens. It's all starting to get a bit boy who cried wolf. But uh, Jeremy Corbyn maybe had a stronger point at the end of his common statement earlier this week. Here it is. We've gone through six years, six years of crushing austerity. Families lining up at food banks to feed their children. Disabled people losing their benefits. Elderly care cut and slashed. Living standards going down. Much of this could have been avoided if our country hadn't been ripped off by the super rich refusing to pay their taxes. And that's quite a good way, I think, for Labour to attack this. It's not so much to go after the man, not to go after David Cameron's taxes, but just to make the point that the wider scandal is that you, Joe Ordinary Person, have had to suffer a great deal over the last few years of cutbacks and austerity measures, while the people who seem to have all the pie still have all the pie. And it's handy because because it, it's the, the newspapers have obviously gone at uh, Cameron, the media have gone at Cameron. So actually, they, they've done that job for the Labour Party. The Labour Party can take the moral high ground and look at the broader picture and essentially looking at Cameron across the dispatch box and still saying, with actually saying it, you represent those evil toads I'm talking about. Now, last time we talked about May's election for Mayor of London. And today we're going to turn to the votes next month for the local councils in England. Right now, I know that what you're probably doing at this point is fumbling around on your phone, reaching for the pause button. But hear me out. Labour has little real chance of making significant gains in Scotland or Wales, for that matter. Sadiq Khan is probably going to be the mayor of London. But then again, London's a pretty friendly place for Labour already. So even that's not a particularly strategic or seismic gain. But if Labour is to have any prospect of returning to government, it needs to show significant progress in England outside London. The problem is the local council seats that are up for grabs next month were last fought in 2012, and they were the best set of election results Ed Miliband had in his entire leadership. Labour gained hundreds of council seats, and now, under Jeremy Corbyn, they need to hang on to them and gain more. Now, Robert, Labour got 38% of the vote in those 2012 elections, and Labour is currently polling around 31 to 32% in national polls. That suggests it's not a question of making progress in those elections. From that high position of four years ago, they're probably going to lose ground. Yeah, it, it could be a very difficult May for Corbyn. As you say, it seems, we can't presume, it, it would seem presently that Sadiq Khan is likely to be the next uh, Labour mayor of London. And say Labour, it, you know, London itself is, of course, a traditionally a, a Labour city. Apart, you know, it's only the, the force that was Boris Johnson that scuppered that. If they do uh, you know, underperform compared to 2012, which seems very, very likely, the knives will inevitably be out in terms of uh, Corbyn's critics inside the Labour Party. That moderate wing that you know, despises the very idea of him being there in the first place. There are bound to be all manner of briefings, all manner of sort of... Uh, the, the, that wing of the party coming out, speaking against Corbyn, raising concerns. 
I myself think that, yeah, it, it's likely, it's unlikely he's going to perform as well as uh, 2012. But I, I think he'll ride it out. I really do. I think they, they can just keep going back to the argument that, look, look at the mandate I have. Only last September. Look at the mandate I have. I don't think even with a dodgy set of results at this stage, for all the moaning they'll inevitably be, I don't see him being shifted out. It's important, though, for Labour to do well in England, because if they're going to win the 2020 election, they need to pick up about 60 seats across England. So if they're not making progress in England, the message is that they're not going to make progress at 2020, which, surprise, surprise, leads you to these reports over the last couple of weeks that there could be a challenge over the summer to Corbyn's leadership, up to three shadow cabinet ministers supposedly considering their positions, but they delay any move against him until after the referendum in June. Now, we've had some Labour MPs who said, oh, we need to gain you know, 400 seats to show that we're making progress here. Most people think they're probably going to lose at least 100, maybe 200. It kind of sounds like they're setting him up to fail. I know. I, I just wonder if anyone has really got the ability in the Labour Party to bring him down. It, it, it's not It's not a skill that the Labour politicians are particularly known for. If it's a Conservative Party, as I said before, it's more like there'd be blood all over the walls. They just they don't stab you in the, yeah, in the back, they stab you in the front. But in terms of the Labour Party, you know, traditionally, they don't tend to be particularly good at bringing down leaders. It tends to be a protracted, messy affair with various people sort of talking the talk but going sideways for a long time. So when I think you think of the, the, the moderate figures, I suppose we're thinking of Dan Jarvis, for example, you know, like Sir Chukramuna would be no doubt be a critic of Corbyn. But will any of them really wield the knife? I'm not sure. Well, speaking of uh, extreme forms of punishment, I don't want to sound like one of those awful Westminster insider types preening about stuff that we know that you don't. But it has been relatively common knowledge for a little while around these parts that the Culture Secretary, John Whittingdale, had a brief relationship a couple of years ago with a woman who subsequently turned out to be, well, a sex worker. Now, when he found out, he ended the relationship and four newspapers have investigated all this, all four of which then refused to publish it. Now, that's led to all manner of conspiracy theories, from the relatively sensible to the bug-eyed and insane. Robert, first things first, I can't see that John Whittingdale has done anything wrong here. He's a single man who went on a dating website, met somebody, the relationship didn't work out, and it ended. If there's a scandal here, it's that the papers didn't run it, either because they didn't want to offend someone who could have a big impact on their industry, or they wanted to have a hold over him. So if that's a scandal, it's a scandal about the newspaper industry. It's not about John Whittingdale. Yeah. And I have to declare an interest being a, a newspaper man myself. I have to say, I do agree with the argument that there were plenty of reasons not to run it as a big expose. As you say, single man has relationship with woman, subsequently discovers she's a sex worker, ends relationship. Uh, being loyal to my trade, I can absolutely see that there is no public interest reason to publish this story about John Whittingdale. There is no reason at all that would justify it. These newspapers don't normally shy away on those grounds, and, and some of them have been backwards and forwards of court trying to lift injunctions to prevent naming of other celebrities that we certainly aren't going to mention here. And, and if you want someone who's walking a tightrope, hacked off pressure group who normally insist that the private lives of the likes of Steve Coogan and Hugh Grant should be strictly off limits, are now furious because nobody invaded John Whittingdale's privacy. Yes, and there's a complete double standard there on the point, on the part of hacked off, clearly. Uh, you know, they, they have 
gone on for ages about how they despise these sort of hatchet jobs, but it happens to be Whittingdale, who they consider to be a political enemy. And suddenly, of course, it, it's a, they see it with rather different eyes. Now, finally, you may be old enough to remember the days when hearing this on the television would have struck terror into the hearts of millions. The next programme will also be shown on BBC Two and ITV. This is BBC One, the time now, nine o'clock. There now follows an election broadcast on behalf of the Labour Party. Now, there isn't one really, you don't have to switch off. But last week, something rather remarkable happened. A party election broadcast that wasn't just bearable... It may well have been the best thing on television that night. It may well have been the best thing on television that week. Meanwhile, in the nursery, Jeremy is asserting his leadership. I found this in the toilet. Everybody's saying bad things about me and it has to stop. Some of the Red Gang are in disagreement over their Trident missile policy. Have you been playing with those rockets again? No. Because I don't like people playing with rockets. The Green Party's uh, election broadcast, which featured perfectly cast child versions of pretty much every leading politician. Um, if anybody from the TV industry is listening, I would watch an entire series of that if somebody chose to make it. Robert, it's it's just amazing. It's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic, original, really, really funny. Uh, we don't say that about party political broadcasts very often. I think I, I remember, I remember sort of uh, watching John Cleese as a, when I was a child, uh, uh, advocating the the benefits of proportional representation for the Liberal Democrat, what was then the SDP Liberal Alliance, and I thought that was funny at the time. But I'm not sure that will have dated particularly well if we look back on it now. Though this was a welcome, welcome breath of fresh air. Other highlights, if you haven't. If you haven't seen it, Boris Johnson standing on the top of a slide in a playground announcing he's going to be the next prime minister. David Cameron refusing <laughs> to get involved in the fight between Boris and George. Theresa May throwing foreign looking dollies out of the classroom. Tim Farron sitting on his own saying that it was all Nick's fault. I mean, it's it's just amazing. The only thing that ruins it is after two and a half minutes of this wonderful piece of television, an adult comes along and, and ruins it all by being serious, kind of going, honestly, isn't it awful the way politicians are? Yeah, that, that, that part really wasn't needed at all and, and, and should be edited out of future versions. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a, there's a potential, never mind the Green Party, I mean, good luck to them, but frankly, it's just a good sitcom there. Uh, many of the kids, I have to say, come across as far more credible candidates for leadership than some of the people they're impersonating. We heard a little bit of, uh, of the Jeremy Corbyn there, and I'm, I'm, I'm just saying... Should a vacancy arise, <laughs> there is another person called Jeremy, uh, perhaps a little bit young, but but a possible replacement. I'm just I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, I think I think there's plenty on the, the certain side of the Labour Party who don't have anyone else called Jeremy rather than Jeremy Corbyn as their leader. To be honest, well, if you if you haven't watched um, that party political, it is well worth looking it up on YouTube. Uh, sadly, we have run out of time to name those celebrities who took out the big injunction. I think pretty much everybody kind of knows who they are by now. Um, next time, it'll be your cut out and keep guide to May's elections, which you won't be able to cut out and keep, but you will be able able to download it and listen to it as often as you like and maybe even recommend it to a friend that'd be lovely in the meantime get in touch on twitter at paul osborne but for now from robert and myself thank you very much for listening and goodbye 